Happy September, movie buddies, and thanks for your download of the 111th edition of Scoring at the Movies. We go back into the past and take another look at sports films, and we spoil them. Oh, we should mention right off the top that we're bound to spoil all the movies in the Karate Kid series today, not to mention a lot of what happens in the Cobra Kai TV series, which I think is coming back soon, coincidentally. I didn't realize that when we picked this movie for this slot. Timely. We are lucky that way. I think it's coming back pretty soon. I'm the 48-year-old kid who prefers to tweak a guy's nose in a humorous fashion rather than murder him, Ryan Ellis. And here's my single tear-shedding mentor who can really hold a grudge and knows that while honor is very serious in Okinawa, it's only moderately serious here in Toronto. Chris-san Di Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. Although, I would have preferred if you didn't bring up my secret shame and the fact that I'm only in Toronto because of the blood feud I had to flee in Okinawa circa 1927 or whatever it's supposed to be. <laughs> I so, mixed and matched there, by the way. I made you both a guy who has a grudge but also is forgiving. So you get, you you're both Sato and you're yeah, Miyagi. I'm Miyagi Sato. <laughs> and get him a body bag. <laughs> yeah. I loved hearing that again in the six-minute recap at the start of this movie. As we stood upstairs a minute ago with your wife, Allison, she watched it with you, apparently wasn't a fan, and I said the movie wasn't really truly a rehash because this is about Miyagi and his family, and it does go to a different part of the world, goes to Okinawa, Japan, mm -hmm. so it isn't truly just remaking the first movie entirely. There's no tournament, for one thing, as yeah. well, but what it does do is show you a full six minutes of the previous movie, which had only come out two years before and was zeitgeisty. Everyone knew about this movie, or yeah. the first one, and yet, let's show you all the highlights from the previous movie. I think part of the reason why... Allison, and I think what you'll hear from me, the way we felt about this movie is in part because we both love Karate Kid so much. Me too. And we talked about it on the podcast, I think, before we were even doing scoring of any kind. It was we just were, like, yeah. did you like it? Can you score kind of stuff? I know we both liked it then. Allison and I watched this during the pandemic, the first one, Karate Kid. Loved it again. We've been watching Cobra Kai. It's a little bit heavy-handed in the let's play into the nostalgic love element, but we yep. still like that series a lot. So we had a lot of hope going into watching this. You're right. We open up with that six-minute montage. And I'm looking at this. And we talked about the fly catch. And okay, they bring that back for reasons, I guess. Of course, they show you the tournament. And like you said, one of the best quotes of all time. <laughs> Get him a body bag. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Love seeing it. But then why do we need to see all this stuff with Johnny Lawrence getting his butt kicked by Miyagi? Why do we have to see all this stuff with Crease? Because as soon as we see Daniel walk out with the trophy, Crease punches a couple windows looks really dramatically at his bloody <laughs> fists, gets tweaked by Miyagi, and then we never see him again. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Shue's character is quickly disposed of by Daniel saying, she dumped me and she busted up my car. And she fell in love with a UCLA football player. Stupid jocks. <laughs> and then we also hear about Daniel's mom a few times, which I found very funny, because the number of people that would say, I talked to your mother... Miyagi said it a couple times, Daniel said it a couple times, never see mom. Mm -hmm. But apparently she's talking to everybody all the time for the first 15 minutes. Randy Heller's asking price was too much <laughs> to apparently. come back for the sequel. Elizabeth Shoes might have been, although I think she was actually in school, legit. So the yeah. human being, not the character, was in school, and that's why she couldn't be in this movie. Ironically, she was in the two Back to the Future sequels later in this decade, though. And she came back in Cobra Kai. As did the mother. That's right. Randy Heller appears in that a few times, too. 
some real interesting choices really early on in this movie about what they're going to bring back via flashback, what characters they're going to bring back just for effectively extended cameos, and then what characters are going to be just given lip service to or entirely mm-hmm. written out of the movie. And like you said, a lot of that's probably due with budget reasons, who would do it, who wouldn't, all that kind of stuff. But it was like a fun 10 or 15 minute opening to this movie, just grinning ear to ear as I'm watching all this stuff. <laughs> This is wild stuff. Well, the part where Crease chokes out Johnny because Johnny finished second, it's not good enough. You're a loser. Breaks his trophy, starts choking him. And then Miyagi defends the kid, and you just said Crease breaks windows with his own hands. Apparently, he's defenseless beyond that. You think he could do something because I don't know if Miyagi could literally kill him, although he says to Daniel that he could. A lot of people think that was from the first movie, and it's deleted scenes that they put into this movie. But it says online that no, they shot it for this film. The shower scene with Daniel, and then that whole sequence outside. Why do you need the shower scene with Daniel in the group boys' shower with Miyagi creepily just hanging out outside? Mm. Couldn't that be a discussion that happens while they're walking out with the trophy? True. And I can understand if it was deleted footage they wanted to use, but apparently it wasn't deleted. It was fresh for this film. And they bring back the referee, who has got more dialogue probably in this brief amount of screen time that he has in that entire match in the first film. And the guy who's the ring announcer, and they're congratulating Daniel and saying, that kick, people talk about that forever. And then Daniel tries to bring it back in the big fight against Chosen at the end, and it's a complete wash. Maybe because he's wearing jeans. At least in this era, you didn't have your stretchy jeans Mm -hmm. as a thing yet, so you didn't have a lot of crotch give or like a good (laughs) crane kick extension. So maybe that was a problem there. So Basuto Kiddo 2, as it was known in Japan. Basuto, B-E-S-U-T-O kiddo you can guess and two you can guess was released by columbia pictures on june 20th 1986 much like the first karate kid this was a huge hit in fact it made about 25 million bucks more than the first one did which is typical now but i always thought around this time frame a movie Mm -hmm. made less as they went on the back the future movies i believe made less than the first one did even though i love the two sequels and the first star wars made more than the two sequels i always thought the same thing historically I think MCU... Now they expect them to go up and up exactly. and up. Exactly. But yeah, historically, it's surprising to hear this one did better. I don't necessarily have the kindest view of some middle Americans' views on other cultures. Okay. Right? So the fact that in the mid-80s, this was a movie that was theoretically focused on Japanese culture... That's what theoretically it really was. Well, I only say theoretically because I question the accuracy of some of this stuff. I don't know to what extent the screenwriters actually took the time to research these kinds of attitudes in Japanese culture in the early 20th century versus... Let's just label this with some sort of broad, stereotypical brush so that we can have this conflict arise. Kind of felt more like the latter to me than the former. Okay. It was, of course, basically all in Japan after the first 15 minutes or so, and all about Miyagi and the Japanese culture that he grew up in and was exiled from, effectively. So the fact that that would outperform the movie that was set in California in a very raw, raw kind of movie is surprising. But at the same time, Daniel LaRusso, and I guess to an extent Miyagi, too, were such iconic characters. For me, when this came out, I was like seven years old. That's not true. You were five years years old. old. And so all I can remember is everybody wanting that bandana wrapped around your forehead, right? I'm sure if you were slightly older or you were like a middle-aged guy taking your kid to see this movie in the 80s, Miyagi was probably a much cooler character than Mm -hmm. Daniel was. He certainly seemed that way to me now. Daniel seems like a little bit of a putz and Miyagi's like the cool character. Maybe it shouldn't be surprising that the sequel outperformed. The other sequels did not, though. Part 3 and The Next Karate Kid got far worse reviews than this did and made a lot less money. In fact, part three in The Next Karate Kid with Hilary Swank and Pat Morita bombed. People are speculating that 
she'll come back at some point in Cobra Kai. Apparently, all the Karate Kid movies are fair game. I guess that would include the Jaden Smith one, which was a hit in 2010. Very big hit. I was about to say I'd love to see Hilary Swank come back for some kind of role in Cobra Kai. But not Smith Jr. I have no time for Jaden Smith and anything <laughs> he's ever done, so no, I prefer not mm. to see that. Jackie Chan, though, would be really cool to see True. as some... He couldn't be Miyagi, but he could be some relative of Miyagi. Another Miyagi? Well, he's Chinese, so... I think they go to China. I haven't seen it once, I don't oh, okay. remember. Because Chan is Chinese. Of course, yeah. So I mentioned the reviews for this. They weren't great, but then the other two sequels did far worse, meaning the next Karate Kid and Karate Kid 3. But this got 44% of critics on its side. That's it. 4.9 out of 10 is the average. There are 32 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and 51% of audiences. I didn't write the first movie's reviews down, but I'm pretty sure they were at least strong passes, probably 75, 80, maybe even more than that. And of course, that first one was a huge hit. Got an Oscar nomination for Pat Morita as Best Supporting Actor. This got one too, but for the song, Glory of Love. You love Glory of Love. I love playing it on Rock Band. I love Glory of Love for the same reason. It just feels like a little bit of a letdown. And this is unfair because it is unquestionably a great song. Mm -hmm. Good for you, Pete Cetera. But after you've heard, you're the best around. around, How do you follow that up? I think this is true. I know the second part of this, I'll say, is true. I think that song, You're the Best Around, was intended for a Rocky movie. It was. And I know that Glory of Love was intended for Rocky Four. Oh, really? And I don't know the whole point of, I'm a man who will fight for your honor in Rocky IV, meaning for Adrian, because Apollo's already dead. She doesn't want him to fight. Why is he fighting for her honor in the lyrics there? I know the lyrics don't have to literally be about what the movie is, but this song doesn't entirely fit this movie. But then at the end, he does fight for her honor, doesn't he? He fights to save her life and her honor, the very end, Kumiko, that is, that Daniel fights, chosen. So maybe the song fits this movie better than it does Rocky IV anyway. It does, although you can make the argument in Rocky IV that you've got more of a bromance between Apollo and Rocky than you do the romance with Adrian being featured in Rocky IV. So he's fighting for the glory of that masculine love and fighting for Apollo's lost honor being literally killed in the ring at the hands of Drago. <laughs> and more importantly, his lost life. It would work, but I agree with you. This fits better in this one, obviously. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, I should have said this maybe five, ten minutes ago. I don't know if this is going to sound that much different than it does usually, but we're in Chris's house this time because Bev had COVID and isn't fully healthy now. And understandably, he and his wife, Allison, want to avoid that. I had it too, but very briefly. And I haven't had symptoms other than a bit of a congestion thing I still have right now for well over a week. So if it does sound different, we're in his basement. And the other thing I was going to say is the Okinawa thing, meaning Japan. They did not shoot any of this movie in Japan. They shot in Oahu, Hawaii. There are a lot of Okinawans there. So I guess maybe they're technically American. Maybe some of them were born in America, but they have Japanese heritage. Anyway, the climate and the vegetation, the trees are apparently the same or at least similar enough that people wouldn't notice. And then the other one is you're still in America. So you're not worried about tax brackets or you have to cast Mm -hmm. certain actors. Although there are a lot of Japanese people, at least Japanese heritage people in this movie. You're not worried about that. Look at the cast. Apart from Daniel-san, it is mostly people that are either Japanese or have heritage that's Japanese. In the context of the 80s, you could always have like a Fletcher Stevens situation going on from Short Circuit, right? Where he's clearly playing against race. I never want to put anything by 80s filmmakers in terms of who they would cast and what role. So it is great to see what I assume to be a cast of Japanese American actors playing Japanese roles. And there are a few elements of the movie we got to talk about, I think, before we jump fully into Japan and all this story arc that takes place in Japan, because there's some really wacky stuff that still happens in California. But anyway, one of the elements I did appreciate about this movie that I'd totally forgotten about from my childhood viewing of it is the military presence in Okinawa. Tomi Village, I guess is what it's called, is now an Air Force base. The individual village, I assume, is fictional. 
I'm not saying that this particular thing happened in this particular village, but Okinawa after the war, World War II, was an American territory. It was a protectorate for effectively 25 years after the war. And it wasn't until the 70s that Japan retook full control of Okinawa. Because of that, there would have been a real American influence in this particular area of Japan because of the military presence. And you would think a residual military presence in Okinawa in particular, after the handover back to Japan by America, just because you know America is not going to just give back land without at least saying, hey, we want to leave a couple military bases here just so we have that Pacific presence, right? Mm. I didn't know if that was a nod to the history of Okinawa. It probably is credit movie because i think that's probably not totally far off base apparently okinawa is 150 islands because i google mapped it when they were traveling over there Mm -hmm. which of course you couldn't do in the 80s but you can do it now find (laughs) information that daniel's trying to find out but when you talk about going to japan it makes me think of course miyagi hasn't been back there since he was a teenager right they do mostly speak english in this movie i guess because they're making an american movie they don't really speak japanese to each other that much meaning the japanese ever maybe never okay there you go But it makes me wonder, how does Miyagi know Japanese this well when he hasn't spoken it to anyone in decades? But we don't know that to be true. Oh, sorry. He had a family in America for a while. They died a long time before the first one set, but still. Yeah. The language thing, honestly, it threw me off. Understanding that this is a movie that came out 35 years ago, essentially, we have different expectations now, I suppose. But if you make the choice to set your movie in Japan with a Japanese lead or co-lead in Miyagi, Daniel's not even in the scene. Nothing that is said is for his benefit. So if you have Miyagi talking with his family or his friends in Okinawa, in his village in Okinawa, why would they be talking to each other in broken English? At the very least, I wish the movie had had a scene where Miyagi showed up and somebody tried to speak to him in Japanese. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. I haven't spoken in 40 years. I can't really do it fluently anymore. The movie makes an effort early on with their arrival at the airport, right? Because Daniel says to Chozen you speak English well, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, yeah, in Okinawa, it benefits you to speak English. And I think part of that is probably the history of the American presence there. Yeah. And by the 80s, the tourism and trade. So they've set up that people speak English. All you got to do is nod somehow to Miyagi, not feeling too comfortable speaking Japanese anymore because of his time in America. But Allison and I watching this just kept looking at each other during some of these scenes between Sato and Miyagi, between his lost love, whose name I forgot now. Yukie. Yukie. And they're both speaking to each other in the most stereotypically broken Japanese English. It became slightly embarrassing for the actors, I felt like, to have to do that. They probably wouldn't do it that way now. They'd probably just let them speak Japanese and then subtitle it. Subtitle it, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wondered if during the ice-breaking scene, where Daniel chops six blocks of ice... <laughs> If that was supposed to be American currency. Now, I don't know what yen looks like, and I didn't look that closely at the stack of money. Okay, there you go. Unquestionably. So they still use American money in Okinawa. I don't remember if it was immediately before that or slightly later, but there was a scene where Daniel and Kamiko were walking up the street, and she was showing him the dancing on the television as her dream. Yeah. The pricing on the televisions was in yen on one side and dollars on the Uh, other. So. The implication, I think, was meant to be that both currencies were being used almost interchangeably. Which you see when you go traveling on vacation in the Caribbean, for example, yeah. like Bev and I have done so many times. But that's different than an actual country that's not really, in that situation at least, Okinawa, about tourism. I think they have to pander because they want the business. The other thing, and this would be different than it was in the 80s, but the Japanese yen has struggled with its own strength for so long that I think it would actually be beneficial. If you were a tourist in Japan now and you tried to pay for something in American dollars... My guess is that more often than not, they would be okay taking it. The strength of the American dollar is likely to increase against the yen going forward, which means that it's actually beneficial for them to have 
American money. Again, I don't know if that was the case in the 80s. I think the economy of Japan was way, way different than it is today, but... Well, they were becoming a world power in Back to the Future, which was made between the two Karate Kid movies, 85. There's that joke in the movie where Doc Brown says, no wonder it doesn't work. It was made in Japan. Doc, they make all the best stuff there now. So even by 85, Japan was thought to have the best electronics. Never mind years later. That's a genuine Sorny, Ryan. Come on. (laughs) Magnafox or whatever. (laughs) That icebreaking scene, since you just mentioned it, made me laugh for a couple of different reasons. The guy that we're introduced to breaking the ice when Mm. we first show up there is Theo from Die Hard, the computer geeky guy. That's right, yeah. Clarence Gilliard, I believe is his name. I know that guy. He's the sass-talking computer geek from Die Hard. (laughs) One of the only ones who doesn't die because he doesn't wield a gun. Yeah. In that movie. In that movie. Nor this one. (laughs) He gets shamed in this movie just by failing to break, what, two pieces of ice, Mm -hmm. I think it was? And then, of course, Daniel, through the power of apparently concentration alone, is able to destroy six blocks of ice. When we talk about depiction of the sport, by the way, this doesn't have that much karate in it at all. Barely any. And that would be some of the most karate in the whole film. And my question is, even though Miyagi says, not about strength, about using brain, you have to outthink everyone else, which is what he did in the tournament. Okay, fine. Right. But still, he's a scrawny little guy. He's gotten better at karate in a few months, but he's not a master at it. Is it even possible he could break two of those, let alone six? See, I think one of the things that threw me off about that scene is what the movie does later. We get that scene of Sato karate chopping, effectively, a giant timber That's later. block, right? I assume that Sato was doing that to micro-fracture the little bones in your hand so they regrow stronger, so that when you actually karate chop something or somebody, you've got the strength in the bones of your hand. Uh. We have a shared friend who, in a fit of anger, karate chopped a chair, Ooh. broke effectively every bone in his hand doing it right so now he's immortal now he's immortal yeah <laughs> hand immortal at least well he can't bend one of his fingers but otherwise oh, yes, he's immortal okay concentration aside and maybe not even raw strength but the fact that daniel doesn't seem to even flinch doesn't even feel the edge of his hand that he just busted through six blocks of mm-hmm. ice and i guess you can make the argument he's got adrenaline pumping through him or something but at least give me the running out of there. With that this wasn't easy. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't easy. Or like shaking your hand going, ah, yeah. oh, ow. I did it, but still. That was a little too easy. Especially since in the first movie, one of the fun things about that movie that, of course, has been parodied to the nth degree since is all of the various training techniques that Miyagi has for Daniel mm-hmm. that helps get wax him Wax on, ready. wax off. Of course. We get, I guess, two instances of that in this movie, but the first of those is so lazy. Where you basically see Daniel bang in, what, two nails? Yes. And he doesn't even fail. You're supposed to see Miyagi do it, and it's supposed to be hard. But Daniel does it immediately. As soon as he learns to breathe again. I'm great at this. At least fail once or twice, and then give us that time lapse of him, maybe with like 28 bent nails failed to have been knocked in, and then he finally does it. It's like, yes, I get it now. I get this focus thing. (laughs) Boom, immediately. Done. What's next? He is great at chores, though. We learned that in the first movie, because he does a great job of sanding and painting and waxing the cars. I've got a new deco back. I wonder if Ralph Macchio's in the <laughs> market for a job sanding and finishing a deck. <laughs> well, we've been talking about Sato a little bit, and I haven't done the nutshell for this movie. I didn't have one for the longest time, and this afternoon I came up with this. It's very simple, and I believe this reference is also Japanese, this other movie. So, Karate Kid Part 2 in a nutshell, referring to Sato. The Grudge. <laughs> Remember that horror movie? They've made it multiple times now. This guy really holds a grudge for decades. I thought you were going to go with grudge match because you've got the two old guys that are going to have the fight theoretically in this movie a la 
who was it? De Niro Stallone and De Niro. Stallone. Yeah. And, that and of course, John Avildsen, who directed this, and the first Karate Kid directed the first Rocky, which would connect mm. them. There Your you nutshell is better than my nutshell. Punch up, Ryan. I punched it up for you. <laughs> but my thing refers, I think, to a Japanese movie. It so does, that. yeah. It's like six degrees of grudge or something. <laughs> that we have to get from point A to point C. I'm sure most of what we're going to talk about from this point is once they're in Japan. Mm-hmm. But there are one or two things that I really want to highlight from their time in California. The first is, who's it, Martin Cove? Who plays Chris mm-hmm. Cove? Martin yeah. Cove, yeah. Another Cobra Kai guy. A lot of these people yeah. are now in Cobra Kai. Which I kind of love to see, honestly. Yeah, you've worked through the years. But... A lot, actually. Yeah. But nothing really all the high profile. Exactly. Although, so... ironically, he made Rambo 2 between the first and second Karate Kid movies. I did see that. So that was quite cool. a stretch for him. Yeah. It's good to see these guys get a pretty good gig, you know, with a four or five season run of a TV show, even on a streaming service. I know the pay isn't quite what it once was. When Cove got the call to reprise his role as Crease in this movie, I really want to know what the direction was that he got. Martin, you're going to come out here. The judge and the line ref or the scorer or whatever are talking to Miyagi and Daniel in front of the venue, mm-hmm. presumably immediately after the tournament has ended. And right? the showers happen as after, well. Yeah. After the weird showers. The kids happen. want autographs. But again, that never plays in later in the movie, so I'm not really sure what the point of that was. No, because Daniel, apart from this first 10 or so minutes, which mostly is flashback, is not really needed in this movie. He's needed for this, and because at the very end of the movie, somebody was like, oh, crap, we have to have Daniel actually get in a fight, don't we? Okay, let's shoehorn this on. Him saving that kid that won't come off the bell tower is just to give Machio something to do. Yeah, exactly. In that big typhoon sequence. Anyway, back to what you're saying about America, though. Yeah, so you've got these four people just having a conversation up front, and then Kreese, right? Martin Cove comes out. And just shoulders his way into the middle of the four of them, mm-hmm. pauses, stands there for like a solid 10 seconds, adjusts his coat, looks slowly at everybody, drinking it in, and then slowly struts away, goes and chokes out Johnny or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's nothing said, right? Mm-hmm. It's basically Pat Morita just staring at Cove and Cove giving everybody the death stare back. Frankly, half of Pat Morita's performance in this movie is him just silently staring at somebody else. Well, that somebody else rants at him. Yeah, he's a very calm character. He's a very calm character. And I also love the role that the postman plays later when he delivers the letter from Okinawa. Yeah, gee. <laughs> yeah. Every time I see a, a performance like this, I'm reminded of, I think, what you've said is one of your favorite scenes from Shakespeare in Love. What's this play about? Well, there's this nurse. <laughs> yeah. The bit actor that just <laughs> views whatever production they're in as being centric on their small character mm-hmm. and that's how they approach it and i feel like that was what this guy that got cast as the mailman who has a couple lines of dialogue but he's in the scene for like a minute and a half two minutes tops just bringing that letter from okinawa that dad's sick <laughs> yeah but he really brings it the mispronunciation of miyagi and then he's just rambling right can the, i see this place give me a tour man <laughs> yeah can i bring my wife here later <laughs> i think half the reason i like that scene so much is not just the performance of the guy but it's almost the equivalent of getting the hook to come off stage during a live performance because <laughs> the camera just loses focus on the mailman mid-sentence and focuses on Miyagi instead. And then in the background, you can see him go, oh, all right, I guess I'm not wanted here. Turns around and leaves. <laughs> it's just so good. <laughs> One thing about Kreese going after Miyagi when Miyagi saves Johnny from Kreese. Mm-hmm. Kreese tries to punch him twice and misses twice with each hand and bloodies up his hands. And as I said before, he can use his feet. He's still bigger than Miyagi, but okay. It would have been good if he tried to kick Miyagi in front of two <laughs> other cars <laughs> and bloodied up both feet. He's just there with all four limbs in the air on his back like a turtle. But my question is, and this is a movie thing, I guess, why did he keep on striking the window? As soon as Miyagi moved, he's not that fast. Okay, maybe you start to hit the window a little bit, but you go right through it. You see this in movies and TV shows all the time. Somebody drops a knife and it goes right through their foot. As soon as I'm about to drop anything when I'm in the kitchen, 
Instinctively, I yank my foot back. I've been hit by a knife in the foot once. I guess I learned the hard way. Why are people so bad at reacting to, oh, the thing isn't there anymore, or the person in this case isn't there anymore. Let me stop trying to punch it or him. I think what we've learned about Kreese in these movies and in Cobra Kai is that he is a man of determination and principle. He'll commit. He commits. Right? I'm going to injure myself, but I'm not stopping this punch. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to throw this punch, and it doesn't matter what happens. I ain't stopping, mm-hmm. right? So I do agree with you in principle, of course. And I think we also see that in fight scenes later on in this movie where similar things happen. Something happens in slow motion, and somebody involved in the fight who should have a full five seconds to react to it just doesn't Mm -hmm. and follows through on whatever they're doing like the fight with Miyagi after the tough guys have destroyed all of his crops and stuff Mm -hmm. and his potted plants and his dojo and his dojo that's an example of that because I know you got to get Pat Morita to plausibly fight five guys he had a stunt double in the first movie when he's attacking the kids to save Daniel the first time and then the thing on the log that was the same stunt man so I don't think that Pat Morita did any of that. But You think that was a stunt guy here? No, I think in this case it was Morita oh, okay, because A, yeah. the guy was slower, and B, you couldn't digitally erase a face like you can now. Right. That looked like it was Morita throwing kicks and punches, at least some of it. The very beginning yeah. of the fight when he starts going after those guys, or he would say defending himself, Yeah, that looked like it was him, the actor, not a stuntman. I agree, and I think that's part of what threw me off is because the speed is not quite there. If you're truly a karate master and you're fighting a couple of guys that are part of a dojo they know karate they should have better reactions than they're demonstrating it was almost like watching alka guinness as obi-wan fighting darth vader in slow motion Mm -hmm. these two guys who are supposed to be jedi knights and masters of the craft okay (laughs) you're worse than you should be one more thing i really liked actually when they're still in america is at the airport when Daniel unexpectedly shows up and he wants to go too, he's cashed in some of his college fund to buy a plane ticket. Yeah. And he says to Mr. Miyagi, you're more important to me than anything. I was very touched by that. It that he actually literally says it because you know it's true. And now they've had another six or so months of knowing each other beyond what we saw in the first film as well because this right. is the end of the school year and the karate tournament in the first movie is in December. You're right. It is touching and it's true. I think we saw the precursor to that earlier when Daniel is told, listen, you're going to have to go to Fresno. Oh, oh mm-hmm. Fresno for two months. He also doesn't have a girlfriend at this point. And he's not in school. So I'm not sure why he was so hell-bent against going to Fresno. Is Fresno some terrible place to be? I don't know. Much not about that I'm it. aware of. Maybe it was awful in the 80s. I don't know. But at the point when he shows up, literally on the gangway to the airplane, they're boarding. What I loved is how Miyagi interrogates Daniel. You're going to get a job. Jobs are hard to get. You bought the plane ticket. They're expensive. That's for your college. I'm like, he's already bought the ticket. Mm. These are irrelevant arguments. He's right there. The money is spent. (laughs) I'm assuming it's non-refundable at this point. So just let him on the plane. You can talk about this on the flight to Okinawa. Why are you arguing it there? Daniel in this movie just graduated from high school. So even though we know Ralph Macchio is 48 years old, his character is meant to be like 18, right? Macchio was 24, by the way, during shooting of this movie. Yeah. So he's way too old. He doesn't look that old. He, he looks now like he's does. 12. Yeah. At this point, he looks like he's even younger than he should be in the movie. And right now in the Cobra Kai series, he looks like an older man now, finally. But I think he's older than Pat Morita was in these movies. That's right. And he still doesn't look as old as Morita did in these movies. He's got a wild set of genetics, does Ralph Macchio. But so if his character in this movie is meant to be, let's say, 18, having graduated from high school or ish, Mm -hmm. if he shows up on the gangway to the the airplane, even if Miyagi says, I don't want you coming with me, that's you. I've got my ticket. I'm going to Okinawa. Why does the stewardess say, I'm going to have to take you back to the gate or something? I think she doesn't think he has a ticket. Because don't forget, back in those days, you could, I think, or maybe it's just a movie thing, go right to the gate. Because of security, of course, you can't now. So maybe that's part of what it is. could just be a movie conceit so he can be right there, but the stewardess doesn't know he actually has a ticket for that plane. 
Yeah, I guess that makes sense. You do get that quasi-hero moment of Miyagi somehow grabbing Daniel's ticket. When Daniel showed up, I didn't see any ticket visible anywhere mm-hmm. on his person, but Miyagi reaches over the frame and pulls back a ticket. Where did you find that? Was that inside Daniel's coat pocket and Miyagi just knows it's there? He's and a magical man. And, he and it all works out in the end because the big bet ends up being money that goes to Daniel's college education. It would have been fun if they had said how much the ticket to Okinawa costs because Miyagi just says it's a very expensive ticket. He doesn't say, oh, it's 500, 600 bucks. But you're right, that big bet where Daniel shatters the ice blocks, I think they said it was $600 or something. That's how much they bet, yeah. That's how much they bet. So we could have seen if Daniel made out okay. Did he come out ahead on this trip or what? Like, I want to know what the profit <laughs> margin profitable. is. Yeah. But we just said a few minutes ago that he doesn't really need to be in this movie. The bell tower thing right. is tacked on. Although the one thing about it that's not so tacked on is that Chosen is told by Sato to go help. And he won't do it. I can't help him. Right. So that's why Sato disowns Chosen. Because, look, my friend just saved my life. Well, not friend at that point. But this guy who I've been hating for most of my life just saved my life. Right. Go help this kid that you don't like. Save another kid. No, I won't do that. I just learned something. Why aren't you learning something? So I guess that makes some sense why Daniel has to be in the storyline. But otherwise, this really should just be Miyagi going over Japan by himself because Daniel's romance with Yumiko is nice and all. And she's a decent replacement for Allie. This movie's not scorable, of course, because you've got senior citizens (laughs) and you've got the younger people with the romance, Daniel and Kumiko. But she's a decent substitute for Elizabeth Shue in this. She looks good. I don't mean she's not good looking, but it's a very chaste, as they all are, movie. The Rocky movies all were, especially the Ableton ones. And so are the Ableton Karate Kid movies. Kumiko's fine. She's just not really given much to do except be the target of Daniel's clumsy affections. And it doesn't really feel necessary. You did say this isn't a paint-by-numbers replacement for Karate Kid 1. They're not just doing the same beats over and over. But it does feel like they're saying to themselves, we need to have certain beats. Oh, there are a lot of beats to replace. It's just not the whole story. It's just literally the same thing all over again. Because you're right. This is Miyagi's movie. And... I don't know why they felt like, okay, Daniel needs to have a love interest in this because it doesn't really go anywhere. It does go somewhere in Cobra Kai in a weird way. Given she comes back in it, as does the guy who plays Chosen. Which is also very weird. And he's becoming a huge factor now because the end of the last season, I said we're going to spoil some of Cobra Kai. Yeah. He's standing at Miyagi's grave when it looks like Daniel's talking to Miyagi about how I can't honor this agreement with men who have none, meaning the Cobra Kai guys. He thinks still Crease, although Crease is now in jail at the end of that last season. It's Terry Silver. He won't honor the agreement, and he sounds like he's talking to Miyagi, but he's actually talking to Chosen, the grown-up version of him, which we saw, whatever it was, season two or three or something, when Daniel goes to Japan. Season, I want to say season three is when he went to Japan. With her, it was fine, and with him, it was going to be, oh, he wants revenge for what happened, because at the very end of this movie, of course, after they have their blood feud fight, where one of them was supposed to die, but a nice reprisal with the nose honk, live or die, man, die, wrong, wrong. But Chosen should be angry for a long time when he's embarrassed like that, when he already was embarrassed before, and he would rather have died. So I can understand him actually more so having this long grudge than Sato. I guess maybe Sato's grudge is partly because he literally blames Miyagi for the romance with Kumiko never happening because she never married anybody, including Sato, who she was supposed to marry. You said Kumiko. wasn't Kumiko. Yukie. Yukie, yes. The Cobra Kai thing is weird for a different reason, and until I rewatched this movie for this podcast, I'd forgotten how weird that Cobra Kai callback really was because A, Daniel knows Kumiko for like a week when he's, Maybe, a, te- yeah. when he's a teenager and he comes back 40 years later. We're best friends. Okay. Yeah, he and Miyagi leave their love interest in this movie and I don't remember them mentioning the two of them when they get Never. back home at all. Not- they address the fact why he's not with Ali. Right. Although apparently, I don't remember this, 
in Cobra Kai when she was back, Elizabeth Shue's character says, no, I wasn't dating a football player and I didn't wreck your car. I forget what the details were, but it says online that she actually debunks what he said in this movie. That was a fun callback from Cobra Kai. Another thing that I'd forgotten about this movie when I'd watched that season of Cobra Kai and connects the two things a little bit better for me now. Chosen in Cobra Kai is a weird character because he is unhinged in this movie. He has like one comment to Cobra Kai where it's like, I got help or somebody helped me. Hopefully that was a lot of therapy, man, because you have problems in this movie. And Mm. you said, well, he was embarrassed and shamed, but he acts like a dick throughout the entire movie. Yeah, he's a sadist. I was not a sadist. Yeah. We see the shaming of him in the storm when he refuses to help Daniel, yes. But even prior to that, he is exposed as a cheat. He By like, Daniel, yeah. actively intimidates and destroys property that belongs to elderly and poor villagers, presumably as an intimidation tactic with, I don't know what purpose ultimately, with respect to Miyagi we know, but just generally we don't really know. We're led to believe that Sato is a man of honor, so you have to believe that he does not approve of his star pupil doing these things, which would imply that Chosen's doing it of his own accord. Yeah. No honor and all that kind of stuff. So when he brings that up at the end, he's trying to regain his honor somehow. It just kind of rings hollow. A, it doesn't really make a lot of sense within the context of these questionable depiction of Japanese societal or cultural sense of honor. But it also doesn't make sense because he shows up at this party, takes Kumiko hostage at knife point, Nobody wants to step in because you don't want to endanger this young woman's life. I get that. But at the point when Daniel pulls the bridge aside that crosses the foot and a half wide little stream that runs through this Mm -hmm. place. So at that point, Chosen throws the knife away, says, okay, we fight to the death. Why is nobody stepping in? Sato and Miyagi, why are they just watching this happen when this guy's saying, we fight to the death? And Miyagi just nods to Daniel after saying, this is for real. This guy is an unhinged lunatic that just assaulted a young woman and is challenging Miyagi's pupil to a death match against his will, and you're just standing in the sidelines nodding and then later banging a drum so that Ralph mm. Macchio can flail his arms wildly <laughs> back and forth. Well, Kumiko fights back against Chosen a few times. She, she does. throws things at his back. Was it a fruit or something like that? A tomato, whatever it is. A rock, maybe. Yeah. After Chosen had kneed Daniel in the guts, maybe midway through the movie. And at the end, she jumps on his back, maybe because he just held a knife to my throat. Chokes him out with a scarf. And then he punches her right in the face, and she's out cold for most of the fight. Can I just say, I did appreciate that the movie literally did not pull a punch when it came to Chosen lashing out at Kumiko after she choked him. In a lot of movies, I think you would have seen like a backhanded slap or something, but he just full on... Mm, as hard as he can. Like, he would try to hit Daniel the same way. Yeah. yeah. Not that I'm saying, yeah, I want to see women battered but this guy would do it but this is what this character would do also i think you're underselling how long that plank is that gap it's not a foot and a half i think it's more like three four feet you make it sound like they could just jump across but they can't really i think it is too far i think somebody they could at least try though and also so you go in the water you get wet then come back the other side how deep is that water (laughs) no my shoes are damp damn it (laughs) i can't defend this young boy's life or this girl's life as well i don't want to get damp that might be a punch-up to this thing. If the dimensions of this, we're meant to believe that it's awkward or the water's deep. Or, or it's a moat with alligators in it. <laughs> maybe. At least show me a scene with somebody saying, oh, I can't cross because X or one of the villagers. You don't want it to be Sato. You don't want it to be Miyagi because you have to have them standing, watching pensively in the background. Cool. But maybe one of Sato's other pupils in kind of the way that the Cobra Kai guys at a certain point were trying to talk Johnny out of what he was doing, right? Like, yeah. this is too much. Maybe one of those people tries to jump across to stop Chosen after he's let Kumiko go, but he misses and he falls in the water and everyone panics because there's crocodiles in here, like you said, okay. or whatever. 
show me why this is all on Daniel when you've got all of these villagers crowded around. Everybody's just standing And they're by. all against Chosen at this point. They were already against him in the shelter during the tsunami. Mm-hmm. And then this is just, okay, well, now he's just gone from being a shamed young man to being a psychopath who's mm-hmm. threatening to kill people. He says that his honor will be redeemed in their eyes. But if you do kill Daniel, or if you had killed Kumiko, that's not honorable. No. And he knows that, but he's nuts. He's way over the top. So it's funny that he's redeemed so much in Cobra Kai, but I'm right? looking forward to this next season because he's obviously a huge part of it. I agree with you. I'm kind of interested to see what they do in the next season because I do hope that they take a little bit more time. I'm sure they will if he's a more prominent character than he was mm-hmm. in that appearances he had before. Let's hear a little bit more about what the heck he did after the for events. decades. Of, yeah, so we can root for you a little bit now because pretty damn hard to root for you back then. Mm-hmm. Although I will say... Chosen in 1980, was it 1986? Just bitchin' style. He is also so ripped. That was a fun scene when he shakes Daniel's hand when Daniel first Mm -hmm. arrives in Okinawa, and you see him squeezing his hand. The triceps are flexing, the forms are flexing. Because Ralph Macchio is such a slight and slender young guy in this movie, to see his opponent just do that. Even Billy Zabka as Johnny in the first movie, bigger than LaRusso, right? For sure. But he was not a jacked-looking guy in the way that chosen is in this movie so it is a more intimidating antagonist in that respect and you could say that strength and size are not enough it is about brains and experience and talent that daniel has against johnny and then of course chosen here but there's also an element of i don't really truly believe that he can beat these two but more so chosen in this movie when he is this much smaller than him and this is a blood feud the whole thing at the end with the drum technique they all happen to have these little drums with them. Did you not see the drum holsters they all had around their waist? The people... Yagi's is right in front. It's right in his crotch. It'll be a sporin in Scotland. <laughs> Same idea. But anyway, so they're doing that, and we see that it's all about how you swing one way or the other, but I don't get why that's so effective when they're both so tired and so beat up. Daniel's more beat up and tired than Chosen is, but then he's just beating him to the punch, literally, in right. the face with the drum technique. Okay, I don't really know why that suddenly is what takes down Chosen. Yeah, I agree. And that comes back to why I felt like they were trying to hit some of those training beats from the first movie, but they did it in a real lazy way. Especially the concentration thing. The hammer and then that leads to the ice block breaking. It's all about focus. It's all about focus. Breathing and focus. But then it stops there. That never really comes into play, really, with the fight against Chosen. That focus stuff is left, and then we get the drum technique. And the way we're introduced to the drum technique is not with a drum, it's with the fishing line Mm -hmm. hooks... It was kind of cool to see Miyagi do it, right? And Miyagi's saying the best way to defend is by not being there or whatever when the yeah. punch comes through. And to see him dodge the giant hook as it falls from a height, okay, that's cool. But then we see Daniel try to do it, and he fails once and falls into the water. I did like the giant cork that Miyagi put on the spike uh-huh. of that, though. That was fun. And then while Miyagi's coming down, Daniel does it a second time and almost pierces himself. We see it rip his shirt. We never see him practice it again after that. Right. And... During that whole thing, as short as it was, Daniel asks, okay, well, this is me swaying around. This is defense. Is there an offensive element of this? Do I strike back? And Miyagi never really answers that. He talks about the drum, which I guess is Daniel's limp arms flailing back and forth. It's supposed to be the retaliation. But I agree with you. Because it doesn't look like when we finally see it in action in that fight sequence, and I say this understanding the target audience for Karate Kid and understanding the ridiculousness of the crane kick as well, but the crane kick is fun and it's ridiculous. Iconic. It's iconic. And according to Johnny and Cobra Kai, now the series, illegal. Yeah. <laughs> they never talked about that in the movie, so we'll let that slide. <laughs> but contra the use of the crane kick in the first movie, when we see the drum technique in the second movie, 
it's not really shot that well, I don't think, for us to really see it. But it just looks like Daniel's not moving laterally or moving side to side. He's just flailing his body back and forth. He's not dodging Chosen's punches. Chosen's not hitting him, trying to hit him anymore. He's overwhelmed. Yeah, exactly. It's not a defensive technique. It's an offensive technique. It makes no sense. It felt like all Chosen had to do was just one punch to the forehead and Daniel would have been unable to dodge it because Mm -hmm. he was so busy flailing his arms back and forth. But like you said, apparently this was such an offensively potent weapon that Chosen was overwhelmed. And he doesn't use it in Karate Kid 3 when he defends his title because that's the storyline there. Daniel is being badgered by Terry Silver and Kreese for that matter and their best student. But then, your best karate Daniel-san still inside. Now best time let out. Okay, so he's now more focused but... When I focus on something, I'm not that much better at it. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. <laughs> so when you have a 0 for 4 day at the plate or something, and somebody yells at you, Ryan, just focus. You're like, ah, oh, damn. Three-run homer. That's what I've been failing to do. <laughs> Bing, gone. I was trying. <laughs> I just wasn't succeeding. You're going up there, and all that's running through your head is, you're like looking at the birds in the sky. Yeah, what a nice day. But I talked before about being touched by the sequence at the airport. It's also touching when Miyagi does see his father, and the father's line is in Japanese. There's some Japanese, because his father says it, and has to be translated for Daniel by Kumiko. Okay. That the father said, if I'm dreaming, don't wake me up. And if I'm awake, then I never want to dream or fall asleep again. And then the father tries to reunite the two guys, Sato and Miyagi, because they're both his students, and he would have known Sato better. Miyagi's father hasn't seen Miyagi in so many decades, but obviously has seen Sato, who's also not helped this village, where his trainer and maybe friend lived all these years. But okay, he tries to reunite them by putting their hands together, and Sato right away, no, three days to grieve, and then we fight. That's the storyline of the movie, but it's a little bit much. Sato is played fine by Danny Kamakona. Only made about 12 movies, by the way. One of them was Honeymoon in Vegas, which Pat Morita briefly is in. Although they don't share a scene in that movie the way they do so many scenes in this movie. I thought that Ken Makona did a fine job as Sato the way they wrote it, but they didn't give him much of anything interesting to do or say other than, I hate you, I want to kill you. <laughs> and he also, and this could be on Avildsen directing this, didn't sell the fact that that giant beam had fallen on his chest to the point where, I'm dead, Miyagi, you come to kill me. He would have died probably if they hadn't done anything to get that board off of him, which they couldn't do until Miyagi managed to chop it away because, of course, Miyagi can do everything when he's challenged well enough. Sato holds his chest a little bit, but then he's fine. It It, should have been badly hurt. His sternum was probably broken from something like that. You would think so, especially since Chosen had fled from that collapsed building saying he's dead. And if all it was was a fairly slight beam that was just slightly too heavy for Sato to move off himself and it wasn't really that grievous an injury, you kind of squint and say, well, why the heck did you think he was dead, Chosen? I actually did rewind this once last night because I enjoyed it so much. (laughs) Sato lying under the beam when Miyagi and Daniel are running to rescue him, and he's just leveling insults at Miyagi the whole time. (laughs) Miyagi's on the beam, about to karate chop it in half. And just before he does it, my favorite line was, you are lower than a dog, or something. (laughs) For coming to attack me now, and I'm defenseless. I love the dedication of Sato to this whole anger. He knows he's going to die if he stays there, but he's so compelled to just nonstop litany of insults at Miyagi while he's trying to save him. And as soon as Miyagi gets him out of there, he sees the light. The hatred is gone. Yeah, it just washed away like so much rainfall off his back. But he plays like a real grim-faced, serious business kind of guy. Best facial expressions, I think, of this kind of character that we've seen since maybe Lionheart. The main villain in that movie had some real serious facial expressions. So did Sato in this. This whole thing is predicated on Miyagi insulting Sato's honor by professing his love for a woman that was promised to Sato in this old societal system. Which isn't like that anymore, Kimiko even says. That's right. So it's an old school thing. Societal views have changed in the intervening decades. 
But Sato was held on to this slight to his honor. You thought part of that was the fact that Sato did not end up marrying his betrothed. That's never terribly well expressed, if that's what they were going for, too. He just keeps reiterating, honorless, honorless, my honor, my honor, mm. right? Okay, fine. This is where I said I question how carefully the writers of this movie actually bothered to look into Japanese culture or Japanese understanding of honor. Not that I know better. It just felt weird to me watching this movie. Okay. How can you claim to be so uppity about your honor when you do things to Miyagi personally that are just honorless? You have thugs destroy his stuff. You threaten to bulldoze the town. So just... he started bulldozing Miyagi's little farm, at least. Yeah. And you don't listen to your teacher, Miyagi's father, to stop this, to stop being this way. That's you right. Ignore what he said on his deathbed. That was a touchy scene with the two hands over mm -hmm. just before dying. That alone, you would think, if this was real, the guy would say, okay, I may still hate Miyagi, but Miyagi's father, right. I respect him, so I will listen to this. Exactly. But he gets the three days instead. I can even let go of the seemingly honorless stuff that Sato does directly to Miyagi, call it blind anger towards this one person. But when you start threatening these innocent villagers and leaving aside the way it seems like he's treated these people in the intervening decades, because it sounds like they're almost indentured servants. It's because like, of him that they are, too. Yeah, exactly. All of that behavior strikes me as very honorless, so it undercuts the whole, oh, my honor has been hurt, so I must kill you kind of thing, right? So it felt weak to me that way. You talked about touching scenes. Miyagi's father putting their hands together literally over his chest just before he dies. That was touching. But what nearly got me, didn't quite get the salty discharge, but nearly did, was later on when Miyagi is sitting quietly looking and at Daniel the And Daniel comes seat. up to talk to him? Yeah. yeah. And the performance... Daniel's of, the mentor for once. Yeah. Daniel's little speech to Miyagi was nice. It's fine, yeah. right? But half of Pat Morita's performance in this movie, at least, is just quietly looking off into the distance, either when somebody's ranting at him or otherwise. And this is one of those otherwise scenes. He doesn't say a word the whole time. He's just quietly looking out. But you can just Let's see... Let's a single tear go. The single mm -hmm. tear of sadness. I don't know. There's something about the eyes of Pat Morita and the facial expressions. And I don't know about you, but I've felt similarly or, or seen male relatives do something like this too. Can't express emotion. Must remain stone-faced. But then there's that little quiver, right? And then a single tear might come down. The face can't quite hold it back. And I felt like Pat Morita channeled that almost perfectly in mm -hmm. this scene. Especially considering, as you said, he doesn't say a word. But this is a movie about regret and living with your choices and also forgiveness. Right. And that scene encapsulates that pretty nicely because Daniel's even saying, I was with my father, who I don't think has mentioned in the first movie at all. No. But I was with him when he died, and that was enough. I could tell him I loved him. I could thank him, tell him goodbye. I always felt grateful that we got to spend so much time with my uncle when he was dying of cancer for months. We thought he'd be dead in a couple of weeks or even less when we got the diagnosis. He lived till August, and the diagnosis was back in the winter. We got so many chances to say goodbye, which is what Daniel's saying is what matters so much here. So that's a very good scene. You're right. And I think crucially what Daniel said there, and I've certainly felt this when people have passed away that I was close to, and I'm sure it's a very common experience, is you always feel guilty about the things that you felt like you could have done better or yeah. didn't do enough. It's human nature to fixate on the things that, oh man, I've made a mistake, I should have done this better or expressed this better to them. But then he comes around with that statement and describes exactly what he just said, which is a great scene. And we know why Miyagi never went back, because we see in this movie why he never went back to see his father or Yukie or anybody else. In the force that is Sato and the unrelenting hatred that he brings. I understand that the movie did, of course, need a premise, an excuse for Miyagi to have A, effectively been exiled from his village and come to America, and then B, go back to Okinawa. There's a part of me that wished they had found a different way to do it, because in the first movie, we learn about Miyagi's wife and deceased child that had died in the internment camps during World War II. About 40 right? years before then, the first movie set. Yeah. He's been living alone for 40-ish years. 
if Miyagi had just maybe had a picture on his wall and Daniel said, oh, well, who's that? And that was it. That's fine. But Miyagi had the whole thing where he had like a quasi shrine set up on the anniversary of their passing. He was drunk and crying. drunk and crying. The scene that some people thought got in the Oscar nomination for the first movie. It was an effective scene. And the way it ends with Daniel seeing what this man did at Warhill for America, not for Japan. And at the very end of the scene. And I think they show this in the recap of the beginning too. Daniel bows. He already respected Mr. Miyagi. But now he really respects Mr. Miyagi when he sees what this man did long before Daniel was even thought of. That's right. But it felt like a gaping, unresolved gap somewhere, right? Because when we learn about this other woman that apparently Miyagi declared his love for prior to leaving for America, Miyagi's a teenager. He loved a young woman. And then he comes to America. He finds his wife and they have a brief, I guess, but tragic Mm -hmm. relationship. But they never mention his wife. And when he pulls out pictures of this ex-love of his from his teenage years, and picture of Sato, and yeah, okay, fine, you have a picture of your old friend. But it's weird to me that he would hang on to this picture of this young woman that he loved back in Okinawa. You would think, okay, well, let's go back to the 40s. Young Miyagi gets married, and why do I need this anymore? This was a part of my life that's passed now. I'll get rid of this. But he still Mm -hmm. has it. But we never see or hear about his wife or his deceased child. And much like Arnold Schwarzenegger in reality, this fictional character never loses an accent even though he spends most of his life not speaking the language, not speaking Austrian, or in his case, not speaking Japanese anymore. Yeah. And if you've seen Pat Morita, because of course he was on Happy Days as Arnold, and if you've seen interviews with him, whatever else, and he was in a lot of movies too, he doesn't sound anything like Miyagi, so it's truly a performance. And as you said already, the word was right, iconic, he and Danielson are both iconic. And Son, by the way, I looked it up. I maybe looked this up before, but I forget. That just basically is a way of saying Mr. Daniel. Oh, really? He always calls him Daniel Son. sign of respect. Mr. Daniel, Mr. Miyagi. Okay. So we talked about Marita and Machio, of course, and Martin Cove. Yuji Okumoto is chosen. He's got small roles in The Truman Show and Inception. And of course, now he's in Cobra Kai. I mentioned Danny Kamakona is Sato. Didn't do a lot of acting, but Honeymoon in Vegas is one of those things. Tamlin Tamita, this is her debut, so she is Kumiko. She was in the Joy Luck Club, and, of course, we mentioned already briefly in Cobra Kai. And Nobu McCarthy, who does play Yukie, was born in Ottawa, so she's Canadian. This was her first movie in over 20 years, and then she was in a few more, but wasn't in many in her whole career. Got more acting roles maybe based on this. Abelson directed Rocky and Rocky V, the three Karate Kid films, and then also Eight Seconds, the bull riding movie, so this guy knows his sports films. The writer, Robert Mark Kamen, also wrote the first movie and the third one, and then later went on to write the Taken films, which have sporty <laughs> elements in them, I guess, with Liam Neeson jumping over things and Certain being athletic. set of skills being demonstrated. Yep. And then Bill Conti, who did the music for, of course, Rocky, and mm-hmm. the first Karate Kid, is the composer here, using that pan flute again. And the same cinematographer that worked on Rocky and Karate Kid, James Crabe, also shot this film. And it looks and sounds fine. It's well enough made. Honestly, I thought the set pieces were kind of cool. Obviously, they had a little bit more leeway to throw some money around for the production of this after the success of the first one. As far as the depiction goes, well, there's not that much karate in it, especially from Danielson. But Yeah, not enough for a movie that's titled Karate Kid, yeah. frankly. The and first movie's got plenty and a lot of yes. training, of course, too. But as we said a few minutes ago, even though he's fine in the film, you don't really even need Danielson in this movie. No, and even if Daniel remains basically an afterthought in the movie, it would have been nice if maybe Miyagi had more training montages with him in Okinawa. Of the type that we briefly saw at that fishing, whatever the heck it was, with the swinging hooks. Right. We see him training with Daniel in the dojo, as in they're throwing punches at each other and kicks at yeah. each other. And I think it's right after the scene when Daniel says to him, I was with my dad and you got to be with your dad when That's right. Miyagi's crying. It was maybe the next day, but it comes across as if, okay, well, to hell with that. Let's get back to training. <laughs> yeah, it felt that way, didn't it? 
So I think you could throw in a little bit more of that, and it resolves the he suddenly got really good at these things without seemingly ever training and also not having much karate in the Karate Kid. I also think it would have been fun if they found interesting ways for Daniel to use some of the karate during the tsunami. Like, we see him <laughs> use his belt for some reason to whiplash the metal bell away from the power line or something. Yeah, that was smart. If that's going to happen, maybe you sidekick the bell away or something. <laughs> Come on, give me some of those karate skills in action. Give me a crane kick that just knocks the beam off of Sato rather than having Miyagi somehow superhumanly split <laughs> an 8 by 8 beam yeah. in half. It would have been fun yeah. and silly. As far as scoring goes, I think we agree. Chase movie. Good looking people, but chase movie. Listen, no movie that stars Ralph Macho can ever be purely chase because that man just exudes pure animalistic <laughs> lust at all times. But other than that, I do agree with you. It's a pretty chase movie. He does go above his station a few times with Elizabeth Shue, <laughs> really Tamlin Tamita, and then I forget the name of the actress who plays his wife in Cobra Kai, but also probably out of his league. Although he's very successful in Cobra Kai as a car dealer. Yes. So. I would give the movie six and a half out of ten. I think it's solid. I think it's fine. I think you're going to give it a lower score. Obviously, yeah. Allison will get even lower than that. But I enjoyed myself. I was touched a few times. It wasn't completely a rehash of the first movie. I see where your score comes from. I was tossing it somewhere between five and six. I'm going to land in the middle at maybe a five and a half. Okay. And the reason I say that is because there's definitely moments in this movie. And I talked about some of those early moments back in California that I enjoyed because they're silly and they're mm -hmm. fun. And there's some similar scenes in Okinawa. And there's definitely some touching scenes in Okinawa that we've talked about. So it's not like this is a lost cause. You will have some fun. But there were definitely stretches in this movie where I felt like I didn't understand, aside from padding or some studio executive that's like, well, we need to have uh, Ralph Macchio romance in this. That's movie. why it's there. Yeah. I think most people would watch this and at least have a certain amount of silly 80s fun with it for the most part. I so did, yeah. I would definitely recommend it on that basis, but... I'm giving it a five and a half because it's got some deep, deep flaws in it at the same time. Oh, it does. I'm not denying that. I just enjoyed myself and that's all that really matters in a movie like I mean, this, I guess. When you're watching a Karate Kid movie of any kind, or even Cobra Kai, you're mostly doing it because you want to have some silly fun with it. You're not expecting it to be a cinematic masterpiece. The first so. one, though, is excellent, especially considering it is basically taking off of Rocky. Same director, same basic storyline. Yeah. You're right. I've seen that movie many times and I always loved it. I always will. One comp for this movie that came to mind when I was watching it, and it might seem silly... But it's the Predator. What has happened with that franchise over the years, where you started with a very narrowly focused story and about these commandos. Film. Yeah, it's a great film, but it's very small and narrow in scope. A handful of commandos versus an alien. But the more modern incarnations of that tried to make it bigger. Galaxy spanning, aliens versus Predator, involve government agencies and countrywide manhunts and stuff. And I feel like that makes it worse. And to a certain extent, I feel similarly about Karate Kid, where the first movie is great for a number of different reasons, but I really like that it's a very narrowly focused thing. It's one valley in California where these kids are having I'm going to beat up my bully. Yeah, that's it. This one is slightly larger in scope. Of course, they go to Japan and involves more characters around Miyagi's life. But I think the smartest thing that they did for Cobra Kai and bringing the show back was really just refocus it on the same narrowly focused realm. They've made it a little bit bigger, but it's a TV series. It's a big cast, but I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's still just high school kids in this valley in California having karate tournaments and silly fights. And I think mm -hmm. that's a formula that works for this concept. And if you try to make it too big, it starts to fray at the edges a little bit. And I think that's maybe what this movie, for me anyway, suffered from, is that edge fraying of needless stuff being in mm -hmm. there. Well, there should have been the Miyagi kid, I guess, is what we're saying, too. Yeah. That's part of the problem. <laughs> Not the Machio's bad, but he was jammed in there a little bit too much. Yeah. Okay, in two weeks, we'll talk about surfing for the first time in over two and a half years as we discuss Kate Bosworth and friends in Blue Crush in another movie with Michelle Rodriguez.
Oh, We've covered two right. already. You oh, thought yeah. Girl Fight was not bad. I think you thought it was okay. Yes. And of course, Fast and the Furious, where she's a supporting player, but she's one of the three, I think, main players in Blue Crush. I like Girl Fight fine, but I think when we talked about that, my feeling was Michelle Rodriguez, in my experience, has one gear and one gear only. Girl Fight fit that. And in my experience with her in other movies, maybe that gear didn't fit so well. Especially in a surfing movie. She doesn't have an ability to change. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how I feel about that with Blue Crush. All right. Well, we're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. You can email us, scoring at themovies at gmail.com. Right. And you can find this podcast wherever you get your favorite, bestest podcasts. We've done 111 episodes now. So take your easy, Miyagi. But then again, you always take your easy. You don't need to learn anything about calmness from the stranger. Just do what you're doing. You'll be fine.